And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome back to the Athletic Football Show. This is Zach Kiefer here to dig into week 15 across the NFL. I thought the statement of the day came yesterday in Orchard Park, New York, where the Bills utterly embarrassed the Dallas Cowboys from the opening kickoff. And it made me think of what Tim Graham, our Bills writer, said a couple weeks back on this show. If Buffalo can find its way into the playoffs, it's still a big if, that's going to be a really scary team. We saw yesterday why that's true. The wild part is them winning the AFC East is very much not out of the question. If you don't agree, you got to check out the Dolphins' schedule the rest of the way. That could be a pivotal matchup, Week 18 in Miami, between the Bills and the Dolphins. In the AFC South, we have a three-team tie at the top. The Jaguars have lost three in a row. They're 8-6. and six. Same as the Colts, same as the Texans, who both won over the weekend with backup quarterbacks. Hell of a job this season by those two head coaches, Shane Steichen in Indy, D'Amico Ryans in Houston. Another coach who's doing a great job is Kevin Stefanski. His Browns, with Joe Flacco at quarterback, snuck out a win yesterday over the Bears to inch closer to the playoffs. The 49ers are the NFC's first 11-win team, and we've got a good one coming in San Francisco next week when the Ravens come to visit. Both of the NFL's two 11-win teams will play at Levi Stadium. That right there could be a Super Bowl preview. But for this week's episode, we're going to bounce around the West Coast of sorts. We'll start in L.A. with Daniel Popper, our Chargers beat writer. Eventful week out there. They were pummeled 63-21 to Thursday night in Las Vegas. Everyone saw that. Then they fired their head coach, Brandon Staley, and the GM, Tom Telesco, the following morning. Really good conversation with Daniel about all the reasons that went into this. Tons, tons of insight on Brandon Staley's coaching style, his personality, his approach, and the flaws that he brought to the table as a head coach that eventually cost him his job. Really good conversation with Daniel, as always. And it's going to be interesting to see if this team keeps repeating the same mistakes that have plagued them for not just years, but decades. For conversation two, we'll stay in L.A. and talk to Jordan Rodriguez, who does a terrific job covering the Rams for us. And rather quietly, Sean McVay is doing as good of a coaching job as he's maybe ever done in the NFL. And I know that's a crazy thing to say. He won a Super Bowl. He made it to another. But really good insight from Jordan on the change in the franchise out in L.A. and how they've done it this year with a very, very young defense and really an old Matthew Stafford, an old Cooper Cup, and an emerging whiteout in Puka Nasua. Really good conversation about Matthew Stafford's season as well. And we had some choice words for those who are not watching the tape because that guy is balling out right now. Finally, the ever-interesting Las Vegas Raiders, again, who beat the brakes off the Chargers on Thursday night. We chatted with Tashawn Reed, who sat down with owner Mark Davis recently and asked about the state of the franchise, firing another coach, and if Antonio Pierce is coaching for the permanent job the last three weeks in Las Vegas. All right, Kiefer in the Beats, week 15, let's go. All right, let's start in Los Angeles, California with our Chargers beat writer, Daniel Popper, who's probably been the busiest person at The Athletic the last couple of days. I hope you got a little bit of a breather over the weekend, but let's be honest, I, I doubt you did. Um, let's start here, Daniel. Let's go back to Thursday. And the Chargers are going to Las Vegas to play the Raiders on Thursday night football. And they're doing it without Justin Herbert. And we all know what he means to that offense, to that team. I want to get your perspective on what you expected to see, right? They're going to start this kid named Easton Stick. And the playoffs are probably a long shot, but we didn't expect to see what we saw. What was your expectation when you got to the stadium that night about what kind of football you thought the Chargers were going to play? So, I, I mean, I, I didn't see, you know, any indication that that this was a team ready to give up you know just talking to guys in the locker room all week like obviously everyone was immensely disappointed that they had lost Justin Herbert um, they sort of knew what the stakes were at that point that the playoffs were were an afterthought um, but from what I gathered like this was a team that that still had pride 
you know, that still was going to go out and, and try and battle. And, and they knew what the opportunity meant for Easton Stick. You know, the last time he'd started a game was five years ago, 1,804 days when he was North Dakota State starting quarterback in the, the FCS National Championship game. That was the last time he'd started a non-exhibition football game. So for him, this was everything. This was career-defining, and, and it, it felt like there was enough there, enough motivation for the guys to sort of rally around Easton. Stick and, like, at least try, like, at least give 100% effort. Um, that did not happen. I think it was a, co- a combination of things. Like, I don't think that the players went out there from the jump and just decided, okay, like, we're just going to mail it in here. But it was one of those things where you had two turnovers early in the game. The Raiders scored off both those turnovers, and they looked up at the scoreboard, and it was 21 nothing. And I think being at that point, at this stage of the season, losing by that margin to a division opponent already, I think it just sort of unravel to that from there but i'll be fully honest with you and say that you know i didn't certainly see any indication i don't know if anyone could ever see any indication that a team with still some good players out there is going to go out and lose 63 to 21 be down 56 points in the second half to a division opponent like it's it's hard to predict something that catastrophic no not when they have players i mean you can debate how good the chargers really are but at what point in the game did your mind shift from this is just a loss this is just a really bad loss to he's not going to be able to coach this team next week because he's going to get fired. Like, when did you shift into like, oh, boy, there might be some pink slips coming? It was probably at halftime. I mean, it was so, it was so fast and furious in that first half. And it's just it was like 42 zip at halftime. Right. That's when you're like, this is embarrassing. You know, 42 to nothing at halftime. You're like, all right. I mean, you know, I, I knew that ownership did not want to make a move until after the season. That they did not want to make a move at GM or coach until after the season. It's how they operate. There's a reason they haven't done in-season coaching moves since 1998 with Kevin Gilbride. Like, it's just how they operate. They prefer to let the dust settle, to get together as a group, and to really have the thorough conversation that's necessary before making any sort of knee-jerk decision, which is, like, a good process, I think, in my opinion. Um, But it was at that point where, you know, you start thinking, okay, like, you know, this could happen. Now, I, I think if they had come out in the second half and battled and, made, and and shut them out, the Raiders in the second half, and made it, you know, 42-28 or something, like, respectable, I think there was a chance. Um, so it was really those two defensive touchdowns in the second half, you know, especially that, that pick six, you know, where it's just like, you know, Jack Jones read the play, knew a screen was coming, had watched enough what film. It was like one of it was, it was like one play. of those moments where just like this this group is not only playing harder but better prepared than this group to play in this football game, and um, you know. But there were other moments. I mean, like Brandon Bolden's twenty six yard touchdown. You know, that was probably the first moment where I'm like, okay, this is. Not, I know what this looks like. I've covered, you know, most of these defensive players for their entire careers. Whether it's Derwin James, Lohi Gilman, Michael Davis. Like I've been covering this team since 2019. I've seen these guys grow. I've seen what it looks like when they're playing good football and they're engaged. Um, you know, for a guy that hasn't had a 25 yard run since 2018 on his first carry of the season at a wildcat to go into the end zone untouched when you saw all these players around, you know, you started to think, okay, this could be, this could be really, really, you know, unraveling here. Um, but yeah, I mean, those two defensive touchdowns, I mean, and then right, like a 327 pound defensive lineman, you know, taking a fumble 44 yards for a touchdown untouched. It's like these little moments. And then, you know, so after that Brandon Bolda touchdown, I had wrote my notebook, effort plays underlined. And yep. I just started adding to that. That's when you start to see the wheels go off. Now, you had a very exactly. fascinating story a couple of days later on Brandon Staley. And he has a very unique rise in the coaching ranks. He was a head coach within like five years of being on the NFL staff, which you just don't see. I want to know yeah. about the Brandon Staley that you covered on a daily basis and in the private moments you had with them, whether it was a one-on-one interview or what. Because you wrote such a fascinating peek into who he was, these are your words, balancing that very fine line between conviction and arrogance. And we saw that in press conferences in the last couple of weeks, and you had an interesting quote. He's a good, smart, effing coach, a team source said of Staley. Too smart for his own good sometimes. Where was the downfall when we talk about Brandon Staley specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote it in there as well. I think the downfall for him was... the ironically the unwavering belief in himself like he believed in he he still believes in himself so strongly right like i mean i think he still he still said it in that final press conference until until the end of that press conference saying that like you know all great coaches have games like this 
Um, you know, why should you be the coach? Well, I, I still believe in myself. I know that I'm a good coach. Um, and so I, I think he is like wildly intelligent. I think he's a very, very, very smart coach. Now that can make you a really successful coordinator in the NFL. If you are able to see things on the whiteboard, if you're able to concoct these defensive schemes and structures, if you can invest fully in one side of the ball, you can be really successful in that area. That doesn't necessarily translate to head coaching. And I think over Drandon Staley's tenure, what I've learned in terms of covering the league is that job is all about leadership, all about leadership. It has very little to do with how smart you are in terms of X's and O's. It has everything to do with, can you stand up there in a team meeting all right. And can you get, you know, 50 to 100 men to buy into a singular goal and message and go out there and do it week after week, put their bodies on the lines, you know, sacrifice time with their families to believe in this one goal and this one mission of an organization like that's what it's all about. And like and so for Brandon Staley, I think what happened was is he had this he felt like he could control and influence all facets of the team with his intelligence and his and his football IQ um, and, um, you know, wasn't as good at transmitting, you know, those ideas to the players and getting them to a point where they could execute it consistently uh, on a week to week basis. That was specifically the case with the defense. And I had players, you know, all season. And I wrote it in that story. Just I mean, just frustrated at how how many rules and how many different things they were trying to implement over the course of the season instead of looking at it and saying like okay we don't need an answer for everything like we don't need an answer for when the third string running back goes on short motion um out of out of a two by two with this much but time Staley left does. In the third... he does doesn't he i don't know if he's ever going to be any different because he believes and and i think he's correct in this he believes that he has an answer to everything he knows that because he understands football at such a high level and can and has that capacity that he can come up with an answer on a whiteboard to every single problem that a defense can face it is impressive and players would tell you that like that is how he operates that's how smart he is but that's not what being a head coach is about and that's not honestly not what being successful in the NFL is about. Can you get your players to play fast? Can you get them to buy in, right? And I think it got to a point midway through the season, you know, kind of after that Lions loss where the players are just like it's just too much. We're going in there and breaking down the film and they're adding in, okay, when this happens, we got to do this and when this happens, we got to do this and when this happens, we got to do this. And you see it and the guys on the field are are taking a half a second to think like, okay, like, all right, we're in the meeting, we added this rule for this formation, boom, all of a sudden, you can't you know, play you're, fast. You're, you're 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 no longer in your in your deep quarter and there's an explosive play behind you because you're focused on some rule that they made about covering the flat and a specific motion out of a specific formation, right? Like that's like getting into the weeds of what it what it means to translate a scheme to your players and get them to buy in and play fast. And there was always that sort of disconnect. I think the players believed in the scheme on the whiteboard. Like I had players tell me that they believed that this scheme is a sound scheme, that it can be a good defense. But they sort of talked about how, you know, they were trying to add all of these layers in between like the main structures of the scheme. It was all these different layers, window dressing and different stuff. Like if you're talking like using the analogy of like a house, it's like adding all of these little details to the house instead of focusing on like the real structure of the house, the foundation of the house. Um, and ultimately, if you're focused on all these minor little details and not the structure and foundation, it's going to fall apart. And I think that ultimately that's that's what happened. That's really fascinating because the more you talk to NFL coaches, especially the older experienced ones, they will tell you the job is more CEO than it is football scheme. Which just mm -hmm. sounds crazy, right? And some of them even say, like, I wish I could coach more. And that I mean, like, position coach, detail, on the grass type stuff. It's a little bit more art than it is science in terms of, like, getting guys to buy in and getting them to play every week. But let's shift gears to the other guy that was fired. And Tom Telesco had been there for 13 years. He was with the Colts under Bill Pullian forever. So really only two mm -hmm. NFL stops for him. But I want you to listen to this clip from Randy Mueller on our Football GM podcast last week. Now, Randy had a really interesting comment about the Chargers organization. He was there for 10 years as the senior executive for football operations. And this was after he was a GM for the Saints and Dolphins. So let's listen to this, and then I want to get your response. It's been a tough franchise. I mean, I, I, like I say, I spent 10 years there, Mike, and the best way I can describe it was, I don't want to say I wasted 10 years, but it was a really hard 10 years because we never got ahead. I felt like we never did enough. 
Um, and nobody ever asked the hard questions. Nobody ever held anybody accountable like I would have liked to. And frankly, I came from Nick Saban in Miami, where we spent two years of Alaskan daily questions, and you tape your ankles every day, and you were over-the-top organized and, and procedurally oriented. And the questions do get asked. And my time in San Diego was probably just the opposite of that. I never saw any hard questions being asked and anybody ever saying, what, what, what are we doing here? That just never happened in the presence of most of us rank and file employees. Okay, Daniel, the first time I heard this, it stopped me. It was like, whoa, that's not something you hear a lot about an NFL organization, but you're there every day. You know the ownership, you know the executives there, you know the team. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think it sort of ties into the last conversation that we had. Exactly. Um, right, talking about... Um, some of the limitations that ownership can provide on an organization, right? And so, you know, what I think what Randy was getting at there as far as like not asking the hard questions, like there's a standard that certain organizations have as far as like, this is what we want to be. And we are willing to do anything, you know, financially or otherwise to get our organization there. Like if, do we want to be a perennial Super Bowl candidate? And what does it take to get there? Across the board, how you operate, how you make decisions, how much money you're investing, you know, all of those things matter in terms of building that caliber of an organization. And in order to get there, you have to consistently assess how you're operating. And that means asking tough questions, right? And I think like I wrote in my column after the game that complacency is comfortable. Like for the Chargers, like they've always had good teams. They've always been interesting. They've always had a quarterback for the most part. But what do they want to um, be? Because there's a difference the between question. a Super Bowl team and a fun preseason pick every year that underperforms. A hundred percent. And so, like though that, like when you're talking about tough questions, that though that's yeah. The like tough I wonder how they would have. answer that question. Well, I'm going to find out today because we're going down to talk to John Spanos, and I'm certainly going to ask him. You know, president of football operations. Like, what what is the standard? Like, like what do you guys want to be as an organization? Like, because in order to get to that level, you have to ask tougher questions. You have to assess your process. You certainly under no circumstances can allow a general manager who has two playoff wins in 11 seasons to remain in the job that long. Like it just doesn't happen. Good organizations aren't patient because they're not comfortable in complacency, you know? And that's really the, that's, I, I, I haven't talked to Randy. Um, that would be my guess as far as what he's getting at. Like, like you have to, you have to really ask tough questions and assess your process and continue to improve as an organization. And then you have to set those standards for yourself that you want to reach if you want to be a perennial contender. Otherwise, you can just live in the complacency and have a decent team once every five years and have the good quarterback and waste more talent. Like that's ultimately like the crossroads that I feel like the organization is at. I have a theory. We know they've had great quarterbacks. The last two being Herbert and Rivers. My theory is that those quarterbacks have camouflaged the inherent issues that have plagued this franchise since, I don't know, the Dan Fouts days, right? Like, Rivers was good enough to make them competitive and to cover up the problems that were there, right? I mean, Rivers makes people better. I was around him in Indianapolis. You could feel it. That dude's for real. Herbert is so good, he makes the Chargers viable at the very least. But like you said, there's all these issues. And like you've pointed out before, everyone else was talking about this the cap hell they're going to be in next year, and really the way they've spent their money this year. Like, those are serious problems, and Herbert's good enough to give you some wins and throw through 4,000 yards. But, like, when are they going to ask those tough questions and change their way of thinking? Spano said in the statement, it's time for a new vision. They've had the same vision for 20 years. Are you buying that they're going to look for a new vision, or are they just going to recycle the same blueprint they've been running with? It's a good question. Now, I can't say, like, I saw the statement, words only mean so much, you know? Like, right. they have to go out and show that they're truly trying to reimagine what this thing is going to look like. What I do believe is that the Chargers know that this is an incredibly important stretch here, like these next five years, right? It's been six years since they moved to Los Angeles. They have to make an imprint in this city some way or another in order for this to be a viable location for them to play football. Otherwise, they're just going to be an afterthought for the rest of the time. Like, this is a, it's crucial. Like, they have to win now, very soon. The last three hires have been coordinators, right? Mike McCoy, right. Anthony Lynn, yep. Yep. Brandon Staley. Do you think yep. they do that differently? We, we won't know until mid-January, but doesn't it feel like it's time for at least them to knock the door down on, I'm just throwing names out, a, a, a Harbaugh, a Belichick, someone like that, that would be totally different than everything they've done in the past. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, like an, I didn't include this guy in my candidates list, but I think Brian Flores is another another guy that you can throw out there. Somebody with like legitimate experience, head coaching. Like, I think more than anything, what they'll be looking for is a leader, like a, a grown up leader that can go in there and like steady the organization for, in that regard. But like as far as the Belichick Harbaugh stuff, right? Like I think in a, in a vacuum, it makes a ton of sense. Um, but like we were talking about the I last time. I don't think Belichick I, does. I don't think Belichick does at all. No? He's 71. Like, maybe you just lean on Herbert being great with the offense, but, like, what he's done offensively the last couple of years is just, like, I'm staying as far away from that as possible. Yeah. If I'm the I think Chargers. That's fair. I think that's totally But fair. I do yeah. think, like, I, a, an experienced, no BS guy is kind of the personality you're looking for. But, again, I'm not hiring a head coach. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, though, like, right, so, like, okay, whoever, whatever name you want to throw in, as far as experienced leader, right? Like guy with, with skins on the wall in a vacuum, it makes sense. But like every team is also operating on a cash budget. You can't just like print more money, you know? Right. And so like, these guys are going to be cheap. They're building a brand new facility in El Segundo. That's slated to open up in March, like state of the art facility. Like that costs money to build. They just put $133.7 million in escrow before this season for Justin Herbert's, uh, you know, guaranteed money, fully guaranteed money on his deal. Like, again, like there, like there are different classes in the ownership ranks in terms of how much cash you have. And that's just the reality of it. So, like, sure, if Bill Belichick, he's 27 wins away from tying Don Shula. If he wants to come, you know, work for the Chargers at a discount based on what he'd been making in New England. Sure. Then it's a conversation. But if he's going to be making 20 to 25 million dollars a year. It is what it is, right? So, like, I think that has to be a part of the conversation here. I don't think it gets talked about enough in terms of decision-making. And I think what ends up happening is, like, oh, well, like, they don't want to win because they're not going to get X coach that's going to cost a ton of money. John Payton, for example. Whereas, like, you know, I think the organization would love to have a coach like that, but there are, like, certain limitations as far as how they operate. Like, that's just the reality of it. And we should say it out loud because, you know, it needs to be a part of the conversation where you're discussing what they can do. Like, there is a reason why... They are hiring the up-and-coming coach. They're hiring the guy with one year of coordinating experience. Like, there's a reason for that outside of them, like, liking Brandon Steely a lot, you know? Like, so, um, I think that all needs to be a part of the conversation. That's the nuance in the context that's really important here that needs to be yeah. discussed from someone on the ground because people can yell all they want about, well, they don't want to go get the big name. It's like, well, no, there's a lot more to it behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Last thing, I'll let you go. You have a busy day. You're going to go talk to Spanos today. What do you want to hear? And you're not a fan, but you are interested in this organization in terms of what's going to change over the next couple of years. It's not crazy to think Justin Herbert, I mean, he's entering the prime of his career. They should be competitive. It's not crazy for me to think that they screw this up again. What are you wanting to hear later today that might think things will be different? Yeah, I want to know what they felt like they got wrong about Brandon. I want to know why Tom Telesco was in his job as long as he was and why they didn't make a change earlier. Um, and then I want to know, like, like what you, you've used this word reimagining. What does that mean? What needs to change as far as how you operate as an organization to prevent you from wasting another quarterback? Because that's that is the question. Like, that's the whole like, question hovering over the franchise. Very few organizations have had this kind of quarterback luck because you because remember, they had Drew Brees before Philip Rivers. Like, it's been my entire lifetime. They've had legitimate like franchise quarterbacks. And they have nothing to show for it. They haven't been to an AFC Championship game since 2007. That was like Phillips' second year as a starter. Like, yeah, he played on a torn ACL. The, yeah. Some of this stuff I feel like flies under the radar because uh, because of just the reality of where they are as an organization in the landscape of the NFL. Like people will check out on the Chargers if they're not interesting, right? And so you lose sight of the fact that like despite the fact that they've had this amazing quarterback luck. Now some of it is like drafting and finding the right players and all of that stuff, but like to stumble into the, the two franchise quarterbacks and have nothing to show for it and to be 5 and 9 in this season where you had such high expectations, like something isn't going right and I want to know like what were the mistakes that were made and how do you rectify it and what will you do differently moving forward from an organizational standpoint to make sure that you do not waste this kid because we have all watched him play. He is a stud. I think we saw it in that Thursday night game, what he means from a leadership standpoint. I don't think anyone's talking about that. As soon as he leaves the game, as soon as he misses the first game of his entire career, the team quits. That's what that guy means. He might not talk and beat his chest and stuff. The way he plays and the opportunities that he gives the team and the, the chance to win he gives them every single time he steps on the field, that means a lot. And he needs some freaking help. So get him some help and figure out how to do it. And I want to know how they're going to go about doing that. That's really good. I'm anxious to read your story. 
a lot of people have debated how attractive this job is. And I understand all the nuances to it, and I understand the cap situation, and they got to move on to some older players. The one thing I go back to is the hardest thing to find in this league is a Justin Herbert. And things can happen really fast. If you have a guy like that, turnarounds can happen really fast. You might have a bad year, but I still think at the end of the day, that kid is going to be the reason the Chargers are among or the premier vacancy this cycle. But we'll see. Maybe Ben Johnson has a couple offers. We'll see. But it's going to be fascinating. But you're just not going to find Justin Herbert on every team, and that's still going to make the Chargers viable. We'll see if yeah. things change, but I'm anxious to see what Spanos has to say today. Yeah, should be fun. I'll add, I'll add on, on you know your last point. Like the cap situation kind of is what it is, right? Like, I, like I, I think if you're a GM candidate, you sort of understand that if you're going into a job, um, yeah, you're gonna have the, the you're cap, gonna have messes. You're gonna have up. to take a year and tear it all down and take on a bunch of dead money, and like you know that year one is just gonna be a mess. Um, and then, so like, I don't think that's that should detract from from how attractive it is for for GMs. And then, from a coaching standpoint, like, and a GM standpoint, like, you have the hardest thing done. Yeah, the quarterback's there and signed. You don't have to negotiate the contract. And so you don't have to think about the position besides the backup. Like that is like that's like a cheat code when you're an yeah. executive in this league. And you have a franchise left tackle on a on a rookie deal as well. So like, there right. it's there's there's pieces here. It should be attractive. I don't think the the cap situation should preclude GM candidates from being interested in the job. All right. Good stuff, man. Thanks. We'll have you back on in January when they hire a GM and a coach, hopefully, so you can get some sleep. (laughs) Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Okay, stop number two. We're going to stay in the same city and have a much different conversation with our stellar Rams beat writer, Jordan Rodriguez. Jordan, how are you doing this morning? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, Like I was telling you, two and five this week for the Rams, two games in five days. Uh, It seems a little cruel for the league to be doing this in weeks 15 and 16, but uh, here we are, and uh, I am upright, so here we go. (laughs) You're kind of in that point in the season where you're just like, you're not really sure what day it is. You just know if it's like a practice or a game or a travel, and you'll like come up for air in like mid-January. Yeah, air and caffeine are the only two necessary life ingredients at this juncture. So. Right. And you're like, like I've spent, gosh, I spent like Christmas in a hotel in some city after a game and I've covered game. You know, it's like, it's just kind of the crazy part of the season. Um, all right, I'm going to start with a bad question today and feel free to call me out on this, but I, I want to ask it. This guy's been to a Super Bowl and lost one. He's been to a Super Bowl and won one. Is it crazy to wonder if this is up there with Sean McVay's best coaching jobs with all the context that goes into it? I don't think that's a bad question. I think that's a great question. And I don't think it's one that he has considered himself at this point because, um, you know, he's he's in it right now. But for me, just kind of watching and observing how everything has unfolded over the last 365 days, but then also evolved from, we talked about it on this show, a true rock bottom for, uh, you know, himself as a coach. And then also for that roster last year, um, this, this is one of the most impressive all, all around though, not just Sean, but the entire coaching staff. It's been one of the most impressive things I think I've seen. Um, and obviously my perspective is, is a little different because I see the growth, the change in over time and the incremental things every single day. So seeing the attention to detail in that regard and, and everybody sort of showing up with this focus and this uh, ability to be present wherever they are in that moment, that that's where their growth is really happening. And schematically, he's done something, I think, extraordinary over the last three, um, I guess, 
if you're going to split his coaching tenure into what, seven years, uh, every two years, he seems to undergo some schematic transformation that hits the league where it's supposed to be and, and sort of, um, tries something new or pivots in a way that is, it, it meets the moment of where the league is trending or about to trend. And that's really impressive in itself to not only be doing that, you know, as a coach, but also be doing that with a roster that for its 90 man and training camp had 44 rookies and seven rookies are currently having significant playing time for this Rams team on offense, defense, and special teams. So it, it is to me, it's pretty remarkable what he has done. Obviously a lot of that has been with Matthew Stafford, with Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, even though he was not uh, able to play through the first part of the year, just having him on the sideline and in the meetings and, and all of those things too. Um, but the development of this entire coaching staff, starting with Sean at the top um, of these young players into a playoff contending team that nobody I think wants to face because they're a good matchup team because of what they've been able to do schematically. The postseason is all about matchups. And, and health. And, and it's just fascinating to me what, what he has been able to do um, from a variety of different bullet points. So I, I think that's a great question, Zach. And I think it's one certainly to explore um, into this last part of the year. It's so fascinating when you look at coaches and how they evolve over the years. And McVay's in his, what, seventh year as the Rams coach? Like he's just as old as I am, but it feels like he's one of the more longer tenured coaches. Your story jumped out because of this after yesterday's win over the Commanders. I'm not surprised, McVeigh said, of his team's position after going 4-1 and one since the bye week. Now, he's not lying either. McVeigh has earnestly championed the potential of this team since May, no matter the surprised faces to that response. And you were kind of ahead of this. You were saying, like, early they were this spunky team that was competing probably ahead of their skis a little bit. Three-game loss, you know, three-game losing streak midseason, Steelers, Cowboys, Packers. Those were all losses. They go into the bye, they come out, they win 4-5, of five, and their only loss is by six points to the Ravens, who have the best record in the AFC. And I was just talking to Popper about this, about how Brandon Staley had trouble taking the whiteboard to the field, right? How being a head coach is more CEO at times than it is even football, than it is scheme. Has McVay evolved in that regard? And I wonder if he's almost reinvigorated by having the challenge of coaching a completely different iteration of this team than he was even 24 months ago. Well, actually, I think he's always been that type of teacher who can teach to the depth of the player and to the roster. Because that's hard got, to do both. Because we know he can do the one thing. We know that. Right. And But that's why the Rams actually hired him, was not because they heard him recite a bunch of scheme ideas over dinner. You know, it was because he and Marshall Falk were at that dinner together having a conversation about football and how it should be applied from a player perspective. It was because they went and sort of um, plumbed the depths of the Washington roster and listened to how he taught concepts, not just how um, what he said or what he drew up or what the ideas were, but actually how they would work. And it goes back to, uh, and, and you know this, Zach, we've talked about this so much, it goes back to arguing plays for call sheets on Kyle Shanahan's call sheet back when he worked for him. And and it goes back even further to that I, than that, I think, from when Sean played himself, obviously not at the highest level, but, you know, was thinking about the game from that perspective. He's always been like that. His roster and, and I think his own uh, re relentless and at times, I think, manic pursuit of perfection of that next shot at the big championship, um, especially after what happened after that 18 season. Um, it, 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 I think, drove him toward the higher parts of the roster, um, toward offensive scheme, toward those types of things. Um, but because everything that happened in 2022 was uh, not just a bucket of cold water, but like wading into the ocean in December, right? And just being, just standing there, <laughs> you know, as the rain comes down. Am I painting the picture enough? So it, This is such a symbolic lead for a story. I'm already, <laughs> I can already see it. And, and it's interesting because it was such a shock to the entire, not just system, but the entire ecosystem that... I, I do believe, and, and I saw it myself, that he went and did the hard work on understanding how much more he needed to reach other parts of the roster. That he That's how he started. That's how he started out his career. And so coaching from the ground up, coaching from that level, it's funny because 
a lot of these, especially younger coaches, the, the why guys, I always call them is like, cause they have to know why and they have to be able to explain why their rosters always sort of like resemble where they're at in their coaching lives. Like, you know, it, it's, and so with Sean, it's almost by, it's, it's a two-folded thing. It's almost by nature of having a young roster, you are forced to return to your roots as a coach, but he also agreed to build the roster that way. So there's a subconscious and a conscious effort of you have to rebuild. And you have it. to coach different. Yeah, you have, you to, have coach. to walk into the building different every day. And I bet it's easy to preach patience, but it's hard to live that in this league. For him, I think it's he had to coach more like himself than he had become. And because I think he had gotten away from who he actually is as a coach, that's and and he'll talk. He's talked openly about that as well. So I think he's you're seeing the the real or more true version of who he is as a coach, but also that person who now has um, handled some personal professional adversity in ways that he thought he was past already. Like, oh, you lose on a public stage to Bill Belichick. Like, oh, that's that must be rock bottom, right? Nope. Joke's on you. It is not. 2022 has yet to arrive. And so um, this is an interesting place because he also went out and hired a bunch of assistant coaches and empowered them to coach in that way as well. Uh, a lot of the coaches he hired have that exact same teaching mentality. We already knew that Raheem Morris had that. And by the way, um, doing that with the defense that they they openly made the defense the sacrificial lamb for this roster this year in order to make the, the economics work. We talked work. about that a month ago. Yeah. Right? And I looked up yesterday and it's 20 to zero. Now they're playing the commanders, but I'm thinking Raheem Morris, man, the Colts really liked him when they brought him for a head coaching interview last January. It's just a guy you don't hear talked about a lot, but they're just getting as much out of this roster maybe as any team in the league. Well, they are the lowest cost, I think, if not the lowest, one of the you know top three lowest cost defenses, uh, player over player in the league. You know the, the top defense was in terms of paid? The Chargers, the yeah. Chargers. And so it's interesting to look at the juxtaposition there because the Rams, I think, are maxing out. There is a dearth of talent on the defensive side in there. It's not to say that things have been perfect. It certainly is not that. There's these big breaks and, and lapses and things like that. But at the same time, maximizing the talent there now especially post by maximizing the talent on the offensive side, the scheme matching sort of the vision and the theory that he had put into place right from the jump. But nobody really noticed it because it was not winning football games. And now that it is, more people are catching on. And then, you know, also those coaches, the assistant coaches, I think of the Mike LaFleurs, I think of Nick Cayley, the tight ends coach, Ryan Wendell, the new offensive line coach who is very much under the radar, but I think needs more attention this year for what he's done with that group. Um, and, and other coaches on the defensive side under Raheem Morris, the, uh, you know, the Aubrey Pleasants of the world, um, you know, rearranging some of these things and, and really um, empowering Got their guys to coach the way that they coach Eric Henderson, tr trusting him with like the youngest D line um, or the most inexperienced D line outside of Aaron Donald um, that they've ever had. I mean, it's that the effort that they've put into it, it was very intentional. It was very focused on reaching the complete roster in terms of that teaching and developing. And I think that that may, has made the biggest difference. I think it's why you're seeing dividends here in the second part of the year. You talk to GMs around the league sometimes and, and, and you ask about players and why they don't live up to their potential and they're like tiptoeing around the fact that like they still need to be coached and taught at this level and it just gets forgotten in the football media world that like good coaching really matters at the position level and it's fun to hear stories about how that impacts guys and how that changes guys. Let's talk about the quarterback for a minute because I imagine... You've gotten to know Matthew Stafford to some degree over the last couple of years. He shows up, he wins the Super Bowl his first year with a veteran-laden team. And now they're pushing for a playoff spot. They're currently in the seventh spot with a completely different roster. Now he's got Cooper Cup, he's got Aaron Donald, but it's, it's a completely different-looking team. Where's he at in terms of, I wonder if this is something he's really enjoyed, having to pick up these young receivers. Now he's got a stud rookie receiver, but like that has to be such a fascinating window into his career, Matthew Stafford's however many years in, having to do it with a completely younger team that, I mean, these guys are a generation younger in some cases. I know. And it's been fun to watch though, because, um, there's just, they all, everybody like likes each other in that building. And it, it's, you know what that definable quality is, right? Zach, it's hard to explain it to people who aren't in locker rooms, but you know what that 
that feeling is where the air does right. not feel heavy in there. You can't fake it. Yeah. You can't fake it and you can't explain it either. Yeah. yeah. And the air just, it feels light. There's a lightness in there, um, a, a shared studying, I think, that's really important. Matthew, you know, for, for all the chatter about, you know, how much older he is than some of his teammates at the beginning of the year, you know, Matthew spent a lot of time with those guys, um, particularly the receivers, to try to um, communicate and build like kind of like how Sean was doing build layer by layer the expectation and the standards of of what was needed and I think I, I, I mentioned this uh, I was on with our colleague Matt Schneidman on his radio show a few weeks ago before the Rams and the Packers played and this was right before the Packers sort of hit that a little bit of a turning point in terms of really seeing what Jordan Love can can really do and, and what a great quarterback he can be and we were talking about how a lot of times if you have a young, really young receiver, they do need to be told what to do by the quarterback. It doesn't matter how talented they are, the timing of an offensive scheme like this and the rhythm and the 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 down to the 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 cut splits and the inches of separation and where to turn your head at what time and this thing that Matthew Stafford's worked with Puko Nakua on late hands to sort of help him sell his his little head and shoulder fakes that he does. Yeah, and the little stuff. Those types of things you do need either a veteran receiver teaching a young quarterback those things, or if you have a veteran quarterback, that true teaching of a young receiving core, those things. And I think that that really buying into that and leaning into that on both sides, uh, Puka Nakua doing that as well as Matthew Stafford, um, I think really helped. And you see that also with Kyron Williams. Um, you know, Ron Gold is someone who I should have mentioned, by the way, in terms of that really teaching mindset. He's their new running backs coach and longtime collegiate coach and and really has leaned in and and with, with the teaching element of that. And Kyron has leaned in with Matthew Stafford, with Cooper Cup, with the linemen, understanding how everything flows and fits together and how everything sets up everything else i think there's um there's a a big picture understanding of what the what everything is supposed to look like and a a very interesting to watch attention to detail not just from matthew stafford as per usual but also that is leaked into a lot of the offensive players that he is with and i have to think that that's a little bit of the transitive property of equality like him being open to sharing and and giving that information and also coaching where coaching is needed um has also i think leaked into some of what we're seeing from these younger players and also matthew stafford i've covered him for a few years now dude's a badass that's all I could say. He's like, playing dude's so a badass. well. Like he's not getting a lot of talk, but like I was gonna ask. Like it feels like he's playing as well as he did his first year there, and I know there's a lot of things that go into that. But like he's tough. He's he, he makes highlight throws every week. He's like the best kept secret in the league right now. At the beginning of the year, his stats, his simple stats, uh, by the way, not his advanced stats, but his simple stats did not reflect the tape. And I would do these hits or, or you know, get asked these questions and it would be like, well, what's going on? Why does he have six interceptions and only seven touchdowns? Watch that kind the of games. And I would just go watch the tape, watch the tape. Yeah, because you can tell who watches the tape. You'll see him do this incredible stuff with the ball. Now everything is clicking together and you can, you know, things are, are happening to where you can actually see theory meet execution because really what you saw mostly was theory at the beginning of the year um, in the run and the pass game. But now you're seeing theory and execution like kind of rise at the same level. And it's fascinating because he is, I mean, he's playing like a top quarterback in this league and um, doing it with kind of this flair that I we actually didn't see until the end of 2021 when he was, you know, soul snatching Stafford with the dagger the, for the love of the gameplay while getting, you know, hit by Nadamik and Sue in Tampa Bay and, and hitting Cooper Cup downfield and then like spiking the ball and shrieking at the top of his lungs like he had been, you know, some demon had taken like over. Like he'd been waiting to do that for 15 years yeah. in that moment in January. Yeah. Right? And, and but now we're seeing that guy emerge a couple times a game we're seeing, you know, the flair. I urge people to go back and watch from this game. Um, there was a sidearm to Tyler Higby that was insane. And then there's also this this fake that he executed on an end around to Demarcus Robinson that was a huge gain for the Rams. And it was the coolest, most casual, like, thing. Oh, my. I mean, it was just, he, he, it was a, I'm that guy. I'm that MFing guy play. That was what that fake was. And he still is. I mean, you put him up there in terms of arm talent. Maybe a notch below Rodgers, maybe maybe equal. He'll downplay it, but if they go to Detroit in the playoffs with that, 
would that be weird for him? Like they haven't seen the Lions since that trade, I don't believe. And like that would be a huge moment in Detroit standalone because they haven't hosted a playoff game since the early 90s. But to have him be the opponent, boy, you're going to have some storylines that week if that happens. Yeah. And also, to be clear, that would be weird for everyone, including the head coach and the other quarterback yeah. on the other side. Yep, yep. So, There's a lot to get to. <laughs> super weird all around, I think. And I, I think the emotion, I think he would be, I think that would hold some emotion. You know, he has always spoken so highly. I think as he's much handled as, it really yeah, well. Yeah, and as much as he's accomplished in Los Angeles in such a short time, man, he always speaks so highly and with so much praise of his time in Detroit, you know, when the, the football games are on in the locker room on the big TVs, um, you know, he, he's always kind of like out of the corner of his eye. There's he's watching, he's tracking, he's keeping track of, yeah, but you, of what's you give going yourself on. There 12, 13 years, yeah. you get everything you have, it becomes a part of you wherever you are. Yeah. And, and so there would be some emotion there. I almost don't want to think that far ahead because then I start thinking, oh my God, what a story that would be. And then you get your hopes up. You get to write that, yeah. So <laughs> I hope it for you, but yeah, we'll, we've got a ways to go. Like McVeigh pointed out yesterday, we'll get you out of here. On this, they have the Saints, like you said, on Thursday night at home. Then they're at the Giants. I don't want to say winnable games because it feels like this year every week is a winnable game for every team, except for maybe like when you play the Niners. But then they finish against San Francisco. Now San Francisco might have the number one seed in the NFC locked up, but. They're going to have to fight their way into the playoffs. What would that mean to McVeigh? What would it mean to the organization to make it in a year where outside of the building, nobody had the Rams in the playoffs when the season started? Yeah, I think it would mean a lot, you know, five years from now when they look at the win-loss record and they look at the the sheet. But actually, you know, last week in Baltimore, I think that they found the thing that they will always remember about this season. Um, you know, they went toe-to-toe with, the best, one of the best teams, top two team in football. And they did it with um, identity and they did it with flair and they did it with um, physicality and and this like sort of brand of of gutsiness and toughness that actually we had seen sort of start dwindling from a Sean McVay led team that had sort of opted more for the flair and the finesse and those types of things. So doing it in that way with all of it, all of the bits and pieces of everybody's personality blended and mixed in there and really expressing itself and manifesting in, in a way that you could really see how much of themselves, every single person on that field put into it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And in the laughter at the beginning of the season and in the rain on that Sunday, you could just really see um, what went into a moment like that. And so I think that they'll, of course, any professional will want to make the playoffs. Of course, I'm not, you know, underselling that at all. But the thing that they were seeking inside themselves, I think they found last week in Baltimore. That's the fun part of the job is is the unexpected. And again, they lost on that walk-off punt return that's probably a little bit of a freak play in Baltimore. But then they came back and, you know, the, the score didn't indicate how much of really it was a blowout yesterday against the Commanders. So seven and seven, three to go. And I urge anyone out there listening, if you're not watching Stafford play right now, flip it on. He is, Watch the tape. He is, sh- <laughs> he is showing off. Watch the tape. Thanks, Jordan, for hopping on. And we'll catch up with you maybe in January if we have a playoff game to cover. Thanks, Zach. Always a pleasure. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now 
to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, third and final stop, Las Vegas, Nevada, with Tashawn Reed, our Raiders beat writer. Tashawn, a rare weekend off in December for the NFL, but um, and when you win... 63 to 21 or whatever it was on Thursday night, you deserve a weekend off. Um, let's just jump in. We haven't talked since the coaching change happened a little bit over a month ago. You're there every day. You're very plugged in with the organization and ownership. I'm just curious from a big picture view, how the Raiders look and feel and sound differently with Antonio Pierce running the show as opposed to Josh McDaniels. There's just a different level of energy. And that's something that you can both feel when you're in the locker room throughout the week after games, but also you can just see it on the field. Like the, the guys, their level of effort has been constant, um, win or lose, um, really no matter what opponent that they're going against. And that's something that we didn't always see, you know, under the previous regime. And Antonio Pierce, he's really led into this player ran uh, model that he's driven and, you know, emphasizing whether it comes down to scheme and, and allowing them more input or, you know, small things like putting a basketball rim, you know, in a locker room or changing the schedule and practice times. And they had a situation earlier uh, before the, the Dolphins game um, that they lost that they were originally scheduled to go to, to Orlando for practices. And instead they stayed here because the players prefer, preferred to stay in their home base and they just practice earlier to make up for the time zone change. And so things like that, is, it sounds small, but when you're consistent with it, um, really, regardless of what the result is, um, you know, win or lose, I think players see it as genuine and then they buy into it a little bit easier. Um, you know, obviously he still has to, you know, lay the wood a little bit and be disciplined um, when it calls for it. And I think we saw that with Marcus Peters, um, you know, he got benched in a game and didn't react to it too well. And the next day he was cut or even on a, a more serious note, um, Roger Teamer, a, a safety who, the night before a game, he got arrested for DUI um, and then he was shortly cut after. And so it hasn't been all, you know, rainbows and sunshine with Antonio Pierce, but he's consistent. And I think that's something that players are really taken to. It's not uncommon when a coach gets fired that the players don't love. And I think that's pretty well understood that they didn't love Josh McDaniels, that you see an uptick in play, right? They win a game or whatever, and then it kind of fades after a couple weeks but it sounds like it's not fading. Like it's persistent, like a month, six weeks in, like they still very much are enjoying playing for this guy, which probably helps his candidacy for the head job. But what do you, where do you come down on that? I think it's, it's definitely still a work in progress in terms of him winning a job. I don't think anything's been decided. Um, I, I think Mark Davis, like ideally, he would like to not have to go through a you know, full scale change and start over at, at both, not just head coach, but also GM with interim GM Champ Kelly stepping in right now. I think he wants to keep both of these guys, but, you know, he's not just going to do it off of emotion or what the players want. He has to also see the results translate on the field. And, you know, they have what they view as, as three winnable games, you know, going into these, these final three weeks 
um, against the Chiefs, Colts, and then Broncos back at home. And so, uh, you know, their playoff chances are, are small at this point. Like, even if they went out, they might not make it. But, um, you know, you know, if they're able to finish, I don't know, 3-0 and or 2-1 and down the stretch and really end the season on a high note, you know, I think that would help Pierce's chances. But um, I, I don't think Mark Davis is going to corner himself in on this one. You know, he's been very adamant that he's going to stay open in this process and conduct a true search, both at GM and head coach. Um, in terms of how it's going to play out once we get to the offseason, it, it does seem like he's leaning towards hiring a GM first and making a decision there and then moving forward, conducting sort of the head coaching search as something separate, which is something that we haven't seen from him in a couple of years. Obviously, last last time McDaniels and Ziggler were hired as a tandem, the time before that, um, you know, Gruden sort of inherited a GM and then got to pick his own GM. The way it'll work now, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is that the GM is going to get hired and then they, along with Davis, will, will pick whoever the next head coach will be. Now, that makes the head coaching search last a little bit longer, and you might miss out on some candidates, but I'm sure they have thought about that. At least I hope they have. Now, you got to chat with Mark Davis recently, and I'm curious, beyond what you wrote, what do you think he's learned from these big swings he's taken? I, maybe McDaniels is a big swing or not. I don't know. We can debate that all day. Gruden certainly was with the contract and the name and the fact that he hadn't been a coach for a long time. He's gone for the big name, and it's busted in his face the last two times. Do you think he's learned from those misses, and do you think his approach will be different this time? Yeah, I think you know what I gleaned most from our conversation was there. There was a level of accountability for those mistakes. You know, I, really, he could have on, easily on just his blamed. Part. Yes, like self accountability. You know, self blame and yeah, he, he made that joke right. On. Like I'm getting pretty good right. at it, right? Like I was like, whoa, yeah. like at least yeah, you very sarcastic. It. Gave me a little smile and a wink. Uh, okay. I, I couldn't help but laugh at that at that at that notion. But uh, yeah, I think he knows that he's messed up. You know, I mean, that's the only way that you end up with this many head coaches and GMs. He hasn't been the owner for that long. It's been a little bit over a decade, and he and he cycled through these guys. You know, like pretty much no other owner in the league during that span, and um, that that shows that you aren't doing a good job of picking him. You know, there's really no other way around it. The buck stops with him, and that's what he's he's embraced. Uh, obviously, that doesn't. Uh, mean that he's going to suddenly get good at it, you know, moving forward. But I think something else that that stood out was, you know, this Raiders franchise was known for a long time of being run by Al Davis. And he was a football mind that was very intimately involved in the the day to day of the franchise. And that's not Mark Davis. You know, he hires people and he's and he's hands off with it. And I think that comes from, you know, an awareness on his part that he's not his father. He's not Al Davis. He doesn't have that football knowledge and talent evaluation and um, you know, able to steer, you know, whether it's the GM or the head coach um, in the right direction. And so, um, you know, he, he sort of hinted at maybe needing to hire somebody in a president of football operations role. I think he believes that there needs to be a third person beyond just a head coach and a GM that's sort of above the day-to-day operations to keep everybody in check and, you know, provide that that missing piece that hasn't been there for the franchise since Al Davis passed away. And so um, it was pretty candid on his part and in, in a position that I think a lot of owners probably wouldn't admit on the record, even if they believed it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's something that, you know, again, while it doesn't guarantee results, like if he does maintain that true openness and willingness to understand that he doesn't know everything going into this process, then I think that gives the Raiders a good chance to finally figure this thing out. Yeah, I mean, you can have all the money in the world and, and this league will humble you because success is just such a hard thing to attain, especially sustainable success. I want to get your perspective, your opinion on this, because they've gone offense the last two times. They went offense with Gruden and offense with McDaniels, and they're kind of a weird roster right now. I wonder, what do you think this team needs in terms of a new head coach, whether that's offense or defense background, but also, like, I was just talking to Daniel Popper, like, a disciplinarian. Like, what kind of new voice do you think they need from someone who's there every day and listening to this team and what the players are at right now. In terms of the type of team culture that they need to instill, I think it's really the one that they have now. You know, one that really what Pierce is the doing, play. right? Especially coming off of you know McDaniel's and, and what went wrong, um, you know, in that situation. And I think you know we can obviously Gruden. You know, a lot of his issues were personnel decisions and draft busts and free agency busts, and he obviously had his situation with the emails, but. From a, a being a player's coach type of standpoint, the guys love John Gruden and love playing for him. And the team, Mark Davis believes, and I think that was part of why he didn't retain Rich Basaccia, is that what that team did that year in 2021, making the playoffs, he thinks they would have done that under Gruden as well. Um, and so when they've had their most recent success, it was under that type of head coach. Now, you know, obviously Antonio Pierce isn't the only type, you know, only guy in the world that can instill that type of culture. 
but it does, you know, give him, you know, a, a good chance if they're able to finish strong here down the stretch to this season with that sort of model um, to be retained as the head coach. I think even if he stays in place, though, they need a, a pretty wide reset on offense. Uh, yeah, this this system that they run even after McDaniel's got fired is pretty much still McDaniel's system, and it's something that from talking you know, people around the locker room and throughout the organization. It's not something that people believe is sustainable moving forward and puts them in the best positions to succeed. I, I think they need a new mind. On, so even if it isn't, you know, a head coach, that's the offensive play caller, they need a new offensive coordinator. And I also think they need a new quarterback. Um, I know Aiden O'Connell is coming off of his best game of the season, um, but it, it was a little, you know, I mean, they had a couple, you know, fumbles deep in their, in, yeah, you know, their those kind of games you kind of got to throw out. Yeah, yeah. And when, I think when you look at the macro with him this season, he looks like a guy that's a developmental backup who can step in as a spot starter, which that's what he was drafted to be. You know, that he was never intended to be the full time starter. That was going to be Jimmy Garoppolo. And I think going into this offseason, you know, moving on from Garoppolo feels like a formality. You can keep O'Connell around. Like, obviously, we see with all the, the quarterbacks that have gotten hurt league wide, like the value of having a type of backup that the O'Connell has shown that he could be. But I do think they need to heavily pursue most likely through the draft, uh, a court, their quarterback of the future, uh, bringing in a, new, a play caller on offense and really reset things on that side of the ball just because they've been so underwhelming. I mean, for a team that has Devontae Adams, Josh Jacobs, Jacoby Myers, Hunter Renfro, young guys like Trey Tucker and Michael Mayer, like they just haven't been anywhere close to good enough this season. They've been one of the worst offenses in the league, and that's a sign that they need a lot of change on that side of the ball. And you got to think it's a fairly attractive job, right? I mean, it's obviously a big brand, but also, like you said, all that offensive personnel. You don't think O'Connell is auditioning for the starting job with these last three games. You think, and you wrote this, they should remain aggressive when it comes to adding a quarterback. And you think that comes through the draft, not free agency. Because like we talked about last time, they're kind of spinning their wheels every couple of years, finding like a C plus, B minus type guy like Garoppolo. And then Garoppolo doesn't even last the entire season. Yeah, I think O'Connell, I won't, I won't say that he has no chance. I think if he goes out there in the final three games and he balls out, like I think he'll be given a chance to compete for the starting job next season, if, even if they do draft a guy. I mean, we've, we've seen that with teams in recent years where uh, they have a highly drafted quarterback and they still maybe they don't start out, you know, to begin their rookie season. So I wouldn't say that O'Connell is just dead in the water, but I don't think that you've seen enough from him or that you're going to see enough in the final three games to really commit to him being your guy moving forward especially with likely a new regime coming in in, in in some form, you know, whether it's retaining Antonio Pierce and Champ Kelly and, and, or going and getting some mix of somebody else. It's just I don't think you've seen enough from O'Connell to really bet on him being a guy moving forward. Uh, and, and when it comes to how they would add a quarterback, I think it'd be tougher than to add a veteran just because of the cost of moving on from Garoppolo. Exactly. They cut him outright. I believe it's a $28 million dead, dead cap hit in 2024. Um, if they give him like a post June one, I think it's like fifteen million dollars, and then maybe like ten million dollars in twenty twenty five. They still have some cap space where maybe you could move around that and get like a mid tier expensive guy. But like this is also a roster that's just not complete yet. I mean, they need help on the offensive line, um, defensively. Even though the defense has been good this year, there's still some areas where they're going to need some extra help. And so going out and paying another you know expensive veteran quarterback just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense for them, especially where this team is. You know, while they've you know kept themselves competitive and in the playoff hunt, I, I think we know that this team is a, is a long way away from competing. And so drafting a rookie quarterback, having that rookie stale and and building around them with the extra money that you have just seems like the best path moving forward. I, I agree with that, because like if you keep just doing this roundabout where it's just you're over, I mean, you're overpaying for guys like Garoppolo. That's just the market these days. And like you said, it doesn't really get you anywhere with those shortcuts. You got to go find someone in the draft. And the lucky thing for the Raiders this year is there's a ton of great quarterbacks coming out. You don't necessarily need to have a top three pick to get one, but we'll see what they do. It will be a fascinating finish for them. They go to Kansas City, which isn't the test it's always been. They go to Indy. That's winnable, but the Colts are playing pretty well and winning a lot of close ones. And then they finish with the Broncos. Do you think Pierce can, last thing I'll let you go, but do you think Pierce can do anything one way? to keep this job or is it more like let's go through a full process come January and Mark Davis is open to all the ideas in front of him? I will say this. If they run the table, um, even if they don't make the playoffs, I think he gets the job. I think it would be hard. That would be four four in a row to finish. Yeah, that says a lot. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, he, he took over. I mean, he won the first two games. It's the Giants with Daniel Jones going down. It's the Jets who have been, you know, their offense has been miserable all season. Um, and then, you know, you lose three in a row. 
a lot of times, you know, after, after you get over that initial wave, like you said, of that coaching change, like we didn't like the old guy, like there was a rush, like we're playing well now. Like usually when you win three and lose three in a row, it's like, all right, it's over. Like this team is, is finished for the rest right. of the season. Right. They were able to recover from that and win four in a row to end the season. Like that shows that you can bounce back, not just from the adversity of having a coaching change, but also having the adversity of, of going through a losing slump. And we kind of saw something similar happen with Rich Bisaccia. I mean, they had that kind of initial surge. They started losing after that, and then they won a bunch of games at the end. And they made the playoffs that year. Like, that could be the difference, obviously, if they fall short this year. We'll, we'll see. You know, I mean, those teams that they would have to beat are all teams that are in the AF, AFC playoff hunt. I mean, the Chiefs, the Colts, and the Broncos. And so who knows what could happen, you know. But I think if they run the table, um, I think that it would be hard to see them not giving it to Pierce at that point. I wonder if he regrets not giving it to Bisaccia. I will say Mark Davis, he isn't a man of regret. Um, I think if you gave him truth serum and, and took him back in time, would he rather would he do that instead of hiring McDaniel's? Yeah, you know, probably like been even, a lot cheaper too. But yeah, right, right. He wouldn't he wouldn't have lost as much money. Like even if Basaccia, because I will say the twenty twenty one season. I mean, it was like nine one score wins. They like had like yeah. six walk off finishes. Hard to replicate. Like it was a lot that. of like it's like the Giants last year stuff yeah. involved in there. You know what I mean? And so. Maybe the next season the wheels fall off and they suck. But then at that point, if you you know if you move on, it wouldn't be nearly as expensive as it was you know for them to do so um, under this this last regime. And so yeah, I think if you, if you took him back in time and gave him some truth serum, he probably would have kept the last year in term. And so I think if this one you know closes out the season undefeated and they finish nine and eight, no matter what, if they make the playoffs or not, I think he'll be retained. Good stuff, Deshaun. Thanks for hopping on uh, on a busy Monday. We appreciate it, and we will be following what the Raiders do over the next couple of weeks because. A lot of these job openings that are going to happen in January, there's a lot of context in terms of how attractive they really are. And the Raiders might have a quarterback, might not, but that's going to be fascinating. It's going to see what Mark Davis eventually decides to do because, like he said to you, he screwed it up the last two times, and now he gets a third chance. Thanks for hopping on, Tashawn. Appreciate you having me, man. All right, that's a wrap on week 15 of Kiefer and the Beats. I want to thank Jordan Rodriguez in L.A., Daniel Popper also in L.A., and Tashawn Reed in Las Vegas for spending some time with us and offering tons of great insight, opinion, and analysis on the teams they cover. They all do such a fantastic job for us. I would encourage you to read their latest work on the teams they cover. It's really, really good stuff. I learn a lot every time I read all of our beat writers. Full slate of shows this week, obviously with the Week 16 preview, probably hitting heavily on the 49ers and the Ravens coming up at Levi Stadium this weekend. No show next week. It will be Christmas Day. I will be busy putting together toys for my two little ones probably all day, but we will be back with you guys following that, following week 17, when we have a little bit more clear picture of what the playoffs are going to look like. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you guys in a couple weeks. This was The Athletic Football Show.